Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas on the World's Vanishing Rainforests. On the island of Borneo, in the South China Sea, grow the world's oldest rainforests. Unaffected by the ice ages, they have existed continuously for 150 million years. In these forests live the Penan, a people thought to be the original inhabitants of Borneo, who have hunted and gathered there from time immemorial. Today, they face the end of their way of life as loggers close in on the last remaining stands of the forest on which they depend. Around the world, there may be as many as 500 million people who still depend on forests for their subsistence. Most of them are now threatened by the rapid pace of deforestation, and many, like the Penan, are making a last desperate stand in defense of their life places. Tonight, in the second program of our series on tropical deforestation, we'll visit some of these places. In Sarawak, where the Penan live, and the Solomon Islands, where an outraged community drove a giant multinational logging company from their lands, and in Australia, where determined conservationists fought pitched battles with loggers and police in defense of that country's last remaining rainforests. The series is written and presented by David Cayley. The village of Paradise on the Pacific island of New Georgia. New Georgia is one of six large islands which make up the Solomon Islands, a former British colony which lies northeast of Australia. Here in the early 80s, a battle was fought between the villagers and Leaver's Pacific Timbers, a subsidiary of the giant British-based multinational Unilever. In 1978, Leavers applied to log 75,000 hectares of pristine rainforest on north New Georgia. Leavers had been logging in the Solomons for 20 years and had virtually written the rules for how it was done. Clear felling of all saleable trees with no replanting. 80% of the land in the Solomons is communally owned and the affected communities were split on whether Leavers should be allowed to proceed. Job Dudley Tausinga is a member of parliament and one of those who opposed the logging because he realized that the forests were irreplaceable. The people and the forest are interdependent. See, Solomon Islands for a long time yet to come, this is what I believe, still will use the forest. The medicines, their food, the building materials, it is a source of life for the people in Solomon Islands. And whether we like it or not, even if we have to try to come up with modernization, the people would still be dependent on the forest. With the community split on whether logging should be allowed, the government intervened on behalf of the company. It passed a law which affirmed the community's ownership of the land, but vested ownership of the trees in a state corporation, which then authorized Lever's logging plan. This legal trick intensified local opposition, and when all negotiations failed, the men of Paradise Village decided to settle the matter in what they called custom style. When 
the government and the leaders did not listen to the people. The people then made some peaceful demonstration or peaceful protests, but that again did not work. The people were in jail for that, carrying out these peaceful demonstrations. So, you know, there is limit to everything. And the patience of these people were running out. And consequently, they raided the company's camp at Denogai. Just before daybreak, on March 27, 1982, 150 men set sail from Paradise for the Leavers' logging camp at Enogai. They landed out of sight of the camp and approached through the forest by night. Their bodies were smeared with a traditional war paint of mud and leaves. Green vines were tied around their heads, arms, and legs, and they carried palm frond torches to light their way. At dawn, they burst into the logging camp. The workers and their families were ordered out of their quarters so that no one was hurt. And then 78 houses, the company store, three bulldozers, and a crane were smashed and burned. The damage was over a million dollars. The raid on the camp at Enogai was the beginning of the end for Leavers and the Solomons. Of the 50 men arrested in connection with the raid, only seven were ever jailed. When the company tried to land bulldozers at Enogai 10 months later, the wharf was set alight and burned. Meanwhile, resistance was spreading. In 1984, another logging camp was burned, this time by the people of a different village. In February of 1986, another of the company's bulldozers was damaged. And finally, in October of that year, Leavers sold its assets and left the Solomon Islands altogether. Behind it, the company left tens of thousands of hectares of land reduced to nothing more than a vine cover, lands that will take hundreds of years to recover and thousands to be anything like what they once were. After eight years of struggle, peace returned to paradise. Faced with the company's appetite for logs and the government's appetite for royalties, a determined people had put their own subsistence first and won. Job Dudley Tausinga led the campaign throughout, and in the midst of it, in 1983, he was elected premier of the Solomon Islands' western province, which included New Georgia. He looks back now with satisfaction. When Unilever led the Solomons, it was really, you know, having gone through all these negotiations, these confrontations, and almost all the work that we did, when Unilever left, that was a time for us to be free, to have a sort of normal kind of life that we used to have. I was born in the forest, and I still love my forest. And I think the problem I have, or the people have, is yet to appreciate the usefulness of the forest. And we need to create some kind of awareness so that people can see that the forest cannot exist without people.
and the people cannot exist without the forest. If there are no people, then no one will say, this is a forest. The battle between Leavers and the people of New Georgia is only one of many similar struggles going on around the world. The action may have been dramatic and the outcome unusual, but the essential conflict between those who depend on the standing forest and those who depend on cutting it down has been repeated again and again. It has been particularly acute in Southeast Asia, where a careless, cut-and-run mentality has run through country after country like a wildfire. The Philippines has virtually exhausted its productive lowland forests. At the current rate of exploitation, Malaysia has maybe 10 years of log exports left to go. By the time Thailand declared a logging ban last December, after two years of disastrous deforestation-induced flooding, it had already become a net importer of wood. And Indonesia now deforests an estimated 700,000 hectares annually. Why these forests have been so badly managed is a question that interests Theodore Panayoto, a Canadian citizen who is now a research associate of the Harvard Institute for International Development. He says that the main reason is that there has been no one in a position to manage them properly. Until the Second World War, most of forests in the world were owned by individuals or by communities. After the Second World War, governments in tropical countries, imitating Western models, they appropriate those forest resources and then declare them state ownership without accommodating the rights of local communities who had access to these forests before. Moreover, governments had no, did not have sufficient enforcement capability and not sufficient presence in those forests. And therefore, is basically what we have here is a conversion of well-managed, traditional, communal forests into an unmanaged, open access, everybody's property, state forest. So the forests were left without effective guardians, such as the people of New Georgia who retained communal rights proved to be for their forests. The governments who appropriated the forests were generally interested in development at all costs, an attitude exemplified by an ad which the government of the Philippines placed in Fortune magazine in October of 1975. To attract companies like yours, President Ferdinand Marcos asserted in this ad, we have felled mountains, raised jungles, filled swamps, moved rivers, relocated towns, and in their place built power plants, dams, and roads all to make it easier for you and your business to do business here. And so, the forests were parceled out to national and international logging firms, typically in short-term concessions. These were intended to preserve the long-term interests of the state, but they had a perverse result. Concessions are less than 20 years, and as a result, since it takes more than 40 or 50 or even 70 years for trees to regenerate in the tropics, 
concessionaires have no interest in the second crop or the third crop. So what they do, they go in the concession and they cut and run because their concession will expire in a few years. And if they conserve anything, they have no assurance that their concession will be renewed in order to take advantage of whatever investments they make in, in preserving the productivity of the forest, in replanting and regeneration, and so on. The problem was aggravated by the fact that the governments concerned usually charged less for the resource than they could have. Just how much less was made clear by a recent World Resources Institute study called The Forest and the Trees. The authors of this study worked out how much governments had taken of what was left over when all costs of logging, including a reasonable profit, had been allowed, what economists call rent or the part of the price which properly belongs to the owner of the resource. They found that between 1979 and 1982, for example, the government of the Philippines took only 16.5% of these rents, and the government of Indonesia only 38%. The rest was left in private hands. According to Theodore Panayoto, this had two results. It encouraged loggers to cut in marginal areas, which would not otherwise have paid, and it accelerated the rate of exploitation. Concessionaries feel that this is a very unusual situation. They don't usually get that amount of free money. And when they get it, they realize that this is going to be temporary. That the governments, one day, they will realize what's going on, and they will change the terms of the concessions. Therefore, what would you do? You try to make hay while the sun shines. You try to cut as many trees as possible while still you are getting a big share of the rents. The foregoing of rents, along with the short terms of concessions, have created what amounts to a fire sale in the forests of Southeast Asia. According to the World Resources Institute study, which I cited a moment ago, the Philippines government's logging revenues have not even covered its related infrastructure and administration costs. The result is that country after country has given away its forests less than the cost of replacement. Forests provide other amenities than timber. They hold soil, regulate the flow of water, control local microclimates, and provide fruit, game, medicines, and other non-timber products to those who live in and around them. Some of these so-called minor forest products also enter into trade. By the early 80s, Indonesia had export earnings of some $120 million a year from the products of the standing forest, like resins, essential oils, medicines, rattan, flowers, and so on. The potential of such product is unknown, since the economic value of the standing forest has generally been overlooked. Conservation now depends on a new economic calculus that considers the value of the forest as a whole. Theodore Panayoto has just co-directed a study for the International Tropical Timber Organization, which proposes that tropical forests be managed with a view to all their uses. Multiple use management, the study calls it. And he says that a first step towards a more holistic management would be to return control of tropical forests to the communities who live in them. Under tropical conditions, in developing countries, if there are people who live around the forest or in the forest, they are probably the best suited to manage those forests because they have a specialized knowledge 
of the ecological uh, properties of the forest, and moreover, the, by their physical presence and by their direct connection between their livelihood and the long-term productivity of those forests, they will be most efficient and most likely to manage those forests for the maximum long-term value. Along the northwest coast of the island of Borneo lies the state of Sarawak. Once it was ruled by a British family who styled themselves the White Rajas of Borneo. Then it became a British crown colony, and today it is one of the eastern provinces of the Federation of Malaysia. It is home to some half a million native peoples, and in the last 20 years, they have suffered cruelly from the depredations of logging companies in their lands. One of these peoples is the Penan, a small group, no one seems to know their exact numbers, who have traditionally lived by hunting and gathering in the forest. Because they are nomads, and because the state government of Sarawak aggressively discourages foreign journalists, they are not always easy to find. But last year, two Australian filmmakers, Jenny Kendall and Paul Tate, managed to meet with one of the last groups of nomadic Penan. The interviews with the Penan that follow are taken from their film, Blowpipes and Bulldozers. The translator is Bruno Manser, a young Swiss who came to Sarawak several years ago and went to live with the Penan, studying their ways, making hundreds of drawings, and compiling a first-ever Penan dictionary. He has now completely adopted the Penan way of life. He says, well, the company entered these grounds maybe four, five, or six years ago. And this makes our life hard for we take water from the river, we take our fish from the river, we find all of our food we find in the jungle. And this is all going destroyed. The water is uh, dirty. The wild bows and the wild game is fleeing or is killed by the loggers. And we are now like fish thrown on the land. The jungle is like all the trees, they are like our home, like our house. Even the little trees, we need them. But now, some few of us, they follow the company, they get corrupted, the company knows to make a bit the dollar sweets to their mouth. But most of us, we don't eat dollars. We eat the heart of the palm, we eat the wild bow, we eat the sango. Of course, when you see our lands getting destroyed and we hear the noise of the bulldozers destroying our land, how can we not be sad and angry? In the last couple of years, the situation of the Penan and other Sarawak natives has begun to attract increasing international attention. A recent visitor who went to see for himself was Canadian conservationist Matt Sylvan. The name is a pseudonym I have given him at his request in order not to compromise his continuing work on behalf of the Penan. He returned to Canada literally gripped with horror at what he saw. 
I don't think it's too extreme to say that there's a, a cultural and biological holocaust happening in northern Borneo. The forest of Borneo, like the forest of West Malaysia and Sumatra, are the oldest living ecosystem on the planet. They're 130 million years old. They're the richest and most diverse ecosystem we have left on the planet. When much of equatorial Africa and South America were becoming dry savanna lands during the Great Ice Ages, that part of Southeast Asia kept its microclimate, kept its warm climate, kept its moisture levels, and, and, and continued on sort of uninterrupted evolution. So it's, you know, this is a world resource, a world treasure that's being liquidated at the most rapid rate of any rainforest area on the planet. Between 16% and 70% of the forests of Sarawak are gone. They've been logged. There's very little left. They've been progressively, over the last 25 years, they've been moving from the coast up in towards the mountains, close to the Kalimantan border, and, and just systematically destroying it. And it's really speeded up in recent years. You go up these rivers, and there's these huge rivers draining out of the highlands of, of central Borneo. And you go up the rivers, and it's like, it's like the closing scene of apocalypse now. You know, all you can think of is the horror, the horror. On both sides of the river, lined up up to 40 feet high, are stockpiled logs that have just been cut and are sitting there. The rivers are jammed with traffic of barges going out with logs and logs and logs. You get to the mouth of the rivers, and there's Japanese freighters lined up as far as you can see on the horizon taking these out. I mean, it is, it is colossal, the scale this is happening on and the speed with which it's happening. The communities involved regard what is going on as simply theft. Sometimes the logging company surveyors just literally turn up, and that is when the community learns that the government has given their land to a logging company. They have expressed disbelief at the way they are being treated. Bruno Manser has heard the complaints of the Penan, with whom he lives. Of course they look at it as an injustice. They know that their fathers and grandfathers have been living here, and they don't know. They reply, for instance, when they are angry, why, why do you, don't you listen to us? If you come to join our, our woods, then you should also allow to us to go downriver to your shops and just take, and then you shouldn't punish us, for that's what you are doing with our, with our lands. These people have had everything they've ever known stolen from them. They've had the land ripped out from under them. The only place they know where to get food is the forest. There's no longer a forest. The only home they've ever known has been the cool shade under the forest. There's no longer that. They're out in the scorching sun. The only thing they've ever known in terms of a society is a few families together. Now they're forced together three, four hundred people. Um, the diseases are spreading. The water is so polluted from the logging and, and the runoff of the topsoil that people are getting very, very sick drinking it. There's no fish left in the rivers. When these people get sick, they might have to walk five days to find a stand of forest where they can find a plant to cure themselves. And as I mentioned, many of these diseases are, they're being affected by now are things they've never known. They don't know, they don't know how to deal with it. I, I asked one man there, we were looking at an area that had been cut 25 years earlier, and I said, surely there must be some plants coming back here that you could use as medicine. And he said, well, I'll show you one. And he took me to a tree that was about three feet high. And he said, this, this tree now has six leaves on it. It has enough leaves that we could take this, all of these leaves and use them for, for fever or for diarrhea or whatever it is they use it for. He said, but, but if somebody was sick, how could we wait 25 years for our medicine to be here? The logging practices which have created this damage are an illustration of the difference between theory and practice in tropical logging. Theoretically, Malaysia practices what it calls selective cutting. What actually happens on the ground, says Matt Sylvan, 
is closer to total devastation. The thing the government of Malaysia likes to point out is they say, look, our forestry practices are excellent. We only take 40% of the trees out of the woods. Um, the rest are left there, so the forest is always still there and intact. Well, it's not true at all. Like, there's much closer to 70 to 80% of all the trees are dropped, and those that are left are usually seriously damaged. The whole microclimate is gone. There's no longer a moist, dark area under the forest canopy for wildlife. It's just open winds coming through and, and the area becoming uh, drier. There's incredible flooding going on there now. Like the last village I left, I had to wade out of it up to my chest in water because like 80% of all the rainfall that comes down there, and it rains a lot in Borneo, through transpiration and, and evaporation goes up through the trees and goes back and forms, forms cloud cover again. Well, with, with 60 to 70% of the area deforested now, most of that rain is staying on the ground. And, 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 you know, like very, very rapid runoff on the surface, taking most of the topsoil with it into all the tributaries and all the major rivers. So the rivers are so filled with, I have never seen a higher sediment load in my life of what's going down those rivers in Sarawak. Logging damage in Sarawak has been so severe and the pace of destruction so swift that many of the Panan have already been forced to settle in permanent villages. They have been encouraged by a government which sees their way of life as an embarrassing anachronism. But they have proved to be only half-hearted agriculturalists and still depend on the forest. These communities are now deeply frustrated and dispirited. Before, when we first came in touch with the government officials, we have been advised to go and settle near the riverbanks so we can live in a longhouse, in a community. And it would be easier for us to be in contact with others, near to those with knowledge who could slowly teach us to lead a better life than what we were used to in the jungle. But now we are here, this is what we see. The company is coming here now and destroying everything we have. They treat us very badly. And if they continue to treat us like this and never listen to what we say, then if something bad is going to happen, we are not to be blamed. We have tried to talk with them, we have tried to discuss things with them, but they never listen to us. The Panan who remain in the forest maintain their traditional way of life, hunting small game with their blowpipes and harvesting the sago palm. But they have been steadily retreating before the advancing loggers. And now, according to Bruno Manser, their backs are against the wall. Five, six years, this area here will be locked from all the sides. It's not for long. That may be 10 years. I don't think that it will be for 10 years. Maybe five, six years, the area can be locked. And then what happens to the Penan? Of course, they get civilized. And they move to where? They have no possibility to move anywhere, anywhere again. That's the way of the nomadic tribes in the past. The company is coming, then they are going to another place. But now the companies are like in a, in a scissors. They are like between. They can't go to any other place where there is still primary jungle. Within one year, or in the next year, if the company cannot be stopped, it will be too late. Even not one year, maybe three months, if the company really drives on the logging roads. You walk on foot. Within one week, you can pass our whole land. It's not a big land. But if our land is destroyed, that's like our death. The destruction of the lands of the Penan 
as happening in spite of a clear recognition in Sarawak law of their communal rights. According to the state constitution, native people own the lands which they have traditionally occupied and used. Unfortunately, says Martin Kaur of the Malaysian branch of Friends of the Earth, what these lands are has never been defined. There was no document given to each community to demarcate what is considered their customary land. So it is a grey area as to what their customary land is. And these timber companies get a document or a license from the government which includes a map which then says that this is their concession area. So here you have a dispute between a timber company uh, which possesses a document and a map and native peoples who say that these are our customary lands which you have intruded upon. So in a conflict like that, uh, the one who possesses a document and a map tends to get the upper hand uh, when it comes to a conflict. And so the natives find themselves at the losing end. Though they, they possess rights, legal rights to their customary land, the definition of what their customary land is is often a grey area and they suffer because of that. A prime reason why these rights have not been respected is because a lot of people are getting rich by abusing them. In Sarawak, logging concessions are one of the perks of political office. The environment minister, James Wong, owns one of the country's most prosperous timber companies, Limbang Trading, which has over 250,000 acres of timber concessions. During the recent Sarawak election, it was revealed that the chief minister and his predecessor between them have a hand in an astounding 30% of the country's forest land. Community after community has tried and failed to impress their demands for communal forest reserves on the state and federal governments. By the early 80s, there were already sporadic outbursts of violence. In 1982, a militant Iban community drove a logging company from their lands by destroying their bulldozers and logging trucks. And by 1987, frustration was so general that all the affected peoples decided on concerted action. Martin Kaur. It started many years ago on an individual basis when people started putting up little barricades, you know, of their own, uh, one or two people here and there, one or two communities, to try to prevent the loggers from coming in. And then, of course, they have also been writing petitions, they've been seeing government officials and so on, but to little effect. So it was sometime in March and April 1987 that 20 different communities in a concerted effort put up blockades in their own areas and managed to freeze logging activities. Representatives of the native leaders also went to the state capital of Kuala Lumpur to meet various government officials and ministers to appeal to them to put an end to their plight. The appeal proved fruitless. Police descended in force on the blockades and broke them. 43 Penan men were arrested, jailed and charged adding to the suffering which they had already experienced in maintaining the blockades. Matt Sylvan. I was told in some of the places that people have starved to death at the blockade sites because they're so far away from any food source. Uh, we were told of a woman that was actually run over and crushed by a bulldozer. Uh, and yet the people have not struck back. They, you know, with a lot of provocation on the part of the military and the police when they come in, they have not struck back. They've peacefully gone off and been arrested, been taken to jail. And we heard of some extreme human rights violations going on there. The men have been handcuffed together in a fashion that they have to actually urinate on each other. They've been put into the toilet sections of the prisons with other criminals. Uh, they've been thrown small rotten fish and stuff as the only source of food. 
And we were hearing these stories from many, many different sources, many different villages isolated over long distances. And, you know, you can't help but feel that there's some truth to them as much as the government of Sarawak tries to deny this. We have tried to bring the situation to a better. We made a blockade. But we lost four police came and destroyed our blockade and burned it down. We have just been standing by. We didn't do anything. We could just look how they destroyed our blockade. And now we got, we got traded not like human beings, but just like short-tail and long-tail macaques. They don't listen to us. We are afraid now. We are afraid. When we try to stop the company, then we will be arrested. But we don't have any ringgit, we don't have dollars. Who will bring us out from jail? Who will feed our women, our children when we are in jail? Despite the privations involved, the blockades have continued. Sarawak is now under virtual martial law. A leading Kayan activist, Harrison Now, was jailed for 60 days without trial and is now under house arrest. Journalists have been kept out of the country and away from the blockades. In January of this year, 127 more Penan were arrested. They faced two-year jail sentences and $2,500 fines under a new section added to Malaysia's forestry ordinance late last year. Resistance continues among the other native communities of Sarawak as well. What is at stake for the Penan is everything. What is at stake for those of us who live inside technological civilization is the continued existence of possibilities other than our own. What's most impressing this is the social context in which they live, that they share everything they get in the jungle. And this is something I myself, I get shy when I think about our civilized people, how we share what we get. We are really big egoists and I have really big respect for them. That's something I have to learn. One of the experiences I, I noticed with the Penan people that is something I've also experienced uh, only in a few other places in the world, and that's like with the Mabuti Pygmies in Zaire and the, the Mabi, the original forest dwellers of Thailand, the hundred that are left, is this instant sharing, this unconscious act of sharing that takes place. If, if you hand some food to some people or you even see them come in out of the forest with some food, it's automatically passed to every single person in, in the group without any thought of, uh, of me. There's never a thought of me first. So we saw this total sharing going on all the time we were in the Penan villages, and the people had very little food. Maybe just, you know, a half a cup of sago palm for each person to eat a day would be it, and we would get our portion. And uh, I, I was very moved one of the last days I was there when a woman asked me, and we had a translator there that could translate Penan to English, and she said, where could we go in your country and be fed and welcomed in the home of a stranger? You know, and she didn't say it. I mean, she thought maybe that our country was the same, but I, I was really taken aback by that, and I thought about it, and I thought, you probably couldn't.
The principal beneficiaries of logging in Sarawak are the local logging companies who do the cutting and the big Japanese timber concerns which import most of the wood in the form of raw logs. For nearly 20 years, Japan has been the world's largest importer of tropical timbers, husbanding its own forests while benefiting from a steady supply of cheap, high-quality hardwoods from the old-growth forests of the Philippines, Indonesia, and now Malaysia. In some cases, it has also financed the logging. In 1987, 96% of its imports came from Sarawak, the neighboring Malaysian state of Sabah, and Papua New Guinea. Randy Hayes of the Rainforest Action Network in San Francisco recently visited Sarawak with a U.S. delegation that included congressional staffers and environmental and human rights groups. He thinks that international pressure to end overcutting and the trampling of native rights in Sarawak, which has so far failed to sway the Malaysian government, should now focus on Japan. Japan and the Japanese yen has become the uh, kind of the Darth Vader of the tropical rainforest and tribal peoples of the world. So we have switched our strategy in terms of putting pressure uh, to try to help curtail the timber cutting in the tribal regions uh, by pressuring Japan, asking them to suspend the purchase of timber from the Sarawak regions that are contested by the tribal groups. We've been pressuring them by launching an international letter writing campaign and to date we have about 50, 57,000 signatures. Now 50% of those signatures are actual Japanese citizens. So what's new also is that there's an uprising in Japan of concern to the point that, you know, 20-some thousand people have been willing to sign a petition that was presented to the Prime Minister's office on April 24th. This is the first time that Japan has really experienced heat about its role in tropical deforestation. Japanese tropical log imports are also the subject of a recently published World Wildlife Fund report called Timber from the South Seas. This report got front-page treatment in the Japanese press and even resulted in questions to the Prime Minister in Parliament. Concern focuses not just on the volume of imports, but also the uses to which the wood is put. Peggy Hallward is the Director of Forestry Research for Toronto's leg of the World Rainforest Movement, Probe International. The saddest thing about the wood from Asia is that it is used as cheap construction material for moldings, for concrete, for the housing market in Japan. So these, we're not even talking exotic veneers that at least someone can enjoy the beauty of them and are, are paying the price. I mean, we're not even talking about that. We're talking about plywood that goes into floorboards and plywood that is used to make um, moldings for concrete. They're used three or four times and then they're discarded. So we're talking an incredibly sad way to use the most valuable woods in the world. And there are alternatives. We don't have to use these particular woods. There is so much degraded land around the world where we could be replanting trees to use for construction purposes. We don't have to be cutting down primary rainforest. The tropical timber trade has now become a major focus of environmental action. In Germany, 30 local councils have banned the use of rainforest timbers in building projects and 200 more councils are due to vote on the issue this year. In Australia, protesters have blockaded ships carrying Malaysian logs into Sydney. Canadian conservationist Matt Sylvan thinks that these kinds of actions are essential, but should also be kept in context. 
I think at the same time that we have to launch a global campaign to, to put pressure on Malaysia to change these policies, we have to do it with a good deal of humility because when I spoke to Malaysian officials, the one thing they can't stand is people from countries like ours that have deforested our continent, that have treated our native people in much the same way the Penan are being treated historically. Being righteous about this, we're in no position to be righteous. The deforestation that's going on in Canada is the, is the most appalling temperate rainforest logging in the world. And, and you know, Malaysia can say, look, we've set aside 6 to 8 percent of our entire nation as national park. Indonesia can point to 9 percent, and they're working for 18 percent by the year 2000. Canada has got 1.7 percent of its land mass as national park. Here's one of the wealthiest countries in the world, second largest land area, you know, lowest population density, no crushing foreign debts like Malaysia faces or Brazil faces, and we, and we take 13 years to save one-tenth of one percent of our forest base like South Moresby, one-tenth of one percent of the B.C. forest base. I mean, it's infinitesimally small on the national scale. So, you know, we've, what we've got to do is say, look, we've, we realize we've got problems. We've all got problems. And Canada's got to start setting a model for the world for environmental protection and, and forest protection and saying to the world, how can we help you with the situation? They came from near and far in answer to the call. Came from every place across the land. They came to make a stand for the earth from which we are born. They came to take their neighbors by the hand. Most of the battles to save rainforests have been fought in countries like Sarawak and the Solomon Islands, where people still depend on the forest for subsistence. But at the end of the 70s, protests also erupted in an industrialized country, Australia, where a powerful conservation movement fought a series of pitched battles with loggers and police and eventually managed to protect much of the country's remaining rainforest. Once. Most of Eastern Australia was covered by tropical and subtropical forests. By 1979, when John Seed got involved, only a few remnants remained, and he and his friends determined to save them. I'd had no interest really in ecology whatsoever up until 1979. I mean, I read the newspapers, I was concerned, you know, and so on, but uh, this, I wasn't a member of any organisations. It was totally alien to me. I was a meditator, basically, and a grower of uh, tropical fruits and subtropical fruits on what later on I realised were the margins of what had been the largest subtropical rainforest in the world, known as the Big Scrub. And there was just a tiny fragment, less than 1% of this remaining. And neighbours of mine uh, had been struggling unknown to me, for four or five years to protect this last remnant. And uh, it just came to my attention in 1979 at one of the local produce markets that were held regularly in that area when someone got onto uh, the microphone and uh, appealed for help to protect this forest. And I still can't remember what actually persuaded me to take part in that because it was very, really alien to my way of life at the time. But 
um, a really profound change took place as a result of experiencing that forest and especially in the conditions of uh, danger and the conditions of excitement of a civil disobedience action where people were lying down in front of bulldozers and getting arrested by the score. The action happened in an area called Terrania Creek over a period of two years. The first blockades resulted in a logging freeze and a government inquiry. When the inquiry proved unsatisfactory, the protests resumed in the fall of 1982. Okay. Hundreds of conservationists were arrested in the skirmishing which followed, but the government finally acceded to their wishes and created a series of parks which protected more than half of the remaining rainforest in New South Wales. The Premier of New South Wales, Neville Rann, called the battle for Terrania Creek a turning point. It took Terrania Creek to really focus our attention on the fact that, first of all, Trees can't be replaced, that they are such uh, an important part of our natural heritage. But also that there were people, not in the hundreds, but in the hundreds of thousands, who loved those rainforests and were prepared to get out and fight for them. Uh, politics in terms of the environment has never quite been the same since. Strengthened by their victory at Terrania Creek, Australia's growing conservation movement next shifted its attention to the Franklin River in Tasmania, where a hydro dam was about to flood the heart of Tasmania's temperate rainforest wilderness. It's not just a river, it's one of a kind. It's freedom you're killing here in the waters that you bind. We're not fools who stand here now, we are everyone. I swear the Franklin is the face of things to come. I swear the Franklin is the face of things to come. The Franklin River became the largest the environmental confrontation in Australian history before or since. About 3,000 people came from all over the country to this very remote corner of, uh, of the country to take part in uh, the, this blockade and more than 1,500 were arrested. The blockade would typically be a string of little puny, yellow rubber inflatable craft stretched across the river with the whole might of the Tasmanian police force and big barges being towed by tugs with earth-moving machinery on the back of them breaking through these blockades. But there were helicopters there and boats full of reporters and so these images uh, rapidly communicated themselves around Australia and we timed the blockade to take place a few weeks before the federal elections in 1983. The interest all around the country, rallies held in every capital city around the country with thousands of people in support of our cause, uh, prompted the 
Labor Party, which was then in opposition, to promise that uh, Bob Hawke, the leader of the opposition, promised that if elected, he would stop the dam. And this is what we'd been waiting for. At this point, we just left a skeleton crew down on the river and we fanned out to 11 marginal electorates that we'd identified around the country where less than 2% separated the two political parties. And we lobbied intensively in those electorates, knocking on every door in those electorates twice in the week preceding the uh, election. All 11 of those electorates swung to the Labor Party and Bob Hawke's first words upon being elected were, the dam shall not be built. The next threat to the rainforest came in northern Australia, where the North Queensland government decided to drive a road through one of the last remnants of Australia's most ancient forest, a forest in continuous undisturbed evolution for over a hundred million years. North Queensland Premier Martin Tenney bid defiance to anyone who dared to try and block his government's plans. We will bring dozers in there if it needs be to clear this road up, and it will be needed. We will cut the tops of the ranges down if it's needed. And no hippie, no greenie, no environmentalist will stop that from happening. They can go their hardest, they can do what they like. They won't win. Australia's greenies, as Martin Tenney called them, rose to the challenge. They were determined to block the road through the rainforest to Cape Tribulation. And to do so, they devised even more dramatic tactics than they had used in their earlier struggles. What we'd done is uh, dug holes in the road at the beginning of their proposed road at a point where they couldn't outflank us because there was private property on both sides of this point and it was in friendly hands. And so they had to go past this point. We dug holes in the road. We cast cement slabs in the bottom of these holes with uh, steel reinforcing and with um, high tensile steel chain coming out of the reinforcing in the slabs. When the bulldozers came, we jumped into the holes, chained our ankles to the cement in the earth and then filled the holes up so that only, only our heads were sticking out of the ground when they came. And this slowed them down for two or three days and during these two or three days, these images of people buried in the earth to protect the rainforest, people risking, it's a very vulnerable situation, especially some people left their hands buried as well and their arms so that they couldn't raise their hands to defend their face. You know, it was a very moving kind of an image. And this burned itself onto the retina of the Australian television viewing public so that even though with the use of dogs, uh, they, they turned dogs loose on people eventually, people were hospitalised, it was very, very rough. And they, they managed to push us aside, of course, and they completed the road. But Daintree, Cape Tribulation, this area became a household word in Australia. And now, a couple of years later, uh, the wheels slowly turned and it looks like this area too is going to become world heritage in spite of the um, objections of the Queensland government. The federal government looks like it's pushing it through. Through the courage and imagination of Australia's conservationists, much of the country's remaining rainforest is now protected. Activists like John Seed have subsequently turned their attention to the world, supporting the struggles of people like the Penan to preserve their forests. Seed believes that this work has a spiritual as well as a political dimension. Ultimate success will only come, he says, when people understand that we are nature. One of the qualities of the rainforest that's been noticed by a lot of very serious-minded scientists as well as by more poetic 
persons such as myself, uh, is that um, one of the things that happens when you spend a lot of time in rainforests is that uh, information which had previously been purely intellectual, especially information about the rainforest and about biology, becomes very personal and becomes very charged. So, for example, the information that we as a species evolved for hundreds of millions of years within these rainforests before emerging fairly recently onto the savannas and into the open, within the rainforest this became a, an incredible realisation of the ability of that rainforest to communicate with me and to contact me because it's the older part of my own self, you might say. And it was the realisation that my intelligence, which up until that time this human intelligence had seemed so important and, you know, the mightiest thing on earth and so on, was just the tiniest subset of the intelligence of the rainforest that had given rise to this as well as to so much else besides. Every cell in our bodies is descended in an unbroken chain from the rainforest and from these vast events that uh, the fossils and, and the rocks teach us about. That uh, it, it was I who was uh, fertilised by a stroke of lightning 4,500 million years ago when the first uh, cell was created on the earth and it was I that was the fish that learned to walk the land and felt my scales turning to feathers and the great migrations through the ages of ice and so on. This is my story, I feel it very personally and it's all of our story if we be open to it and if we can lose our fascination with this sad 16,000 year written history which is all that we've normally identified with up until now. This has been the second program in our five-part repeat series on the world's forests. The series was written and presented by David Cayley. Technical operations, Lorne Tulk. Production assistants, Gail Brownell and Faye McPherson. Producer, Jill Eisen. Special thanks to Australian filmmakers Jenny Kendall and Paul Tate of Gaia Films for allowing us to use material from blowpipes and bulldozers, Earth First and a forthcoming film on the Solomon Islands. Next Friday evening, we'll follow the journey of Paya Khan, a Kayapo Indian chief in Brazil, who is leading a worldwide struggle to stop the building of hydro dams in the Amazon. Printed transcripts of this series are available for $7. Send a cheque or money order to CBC Enterprises, Forests, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. And please remember it will be six or eight weeks before your transcript arrives. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night. <laughs>